In Parashas Lech Lecha, we're introduced to Sodom. Avram and Lot decide that they have to split up. Avram tells Lot to pick some place he would like to go. Lot sees the area of the Kikar Hayarden, the Jordan Plain. It's very fertile, it's beautiful. This was before God had destroyed Sodom and Amorah. It was Kigan Hashem, Keretz, Mitzrayim, like the Garden of God, the land of Mitzrayim. Lot decided he would like to go there. Avram stayed in Eretz Canaan, and Lot lived in the Arei HaKikar, Vayehalad Sodom. And the Bible then had, passes judgment on Lot and his new friends, his new neighbors. People in stone were very wicked, were sinners, they sinned against God. They were very wicked people. Now we know, of course, the, the, Sodom, the, the Ark of Sodom continues in the next parasha, where there is the destruction of Sodom. God finally has enough of the horrific behavior of Sodom, and he destroys the whole city. Sodom is held up uh, as the archetype of destruction, lit in Parashas Nitzavim, Gafris Vamelach, Srefa Chalartza, that uh, the punishment the Jews can expect if they sin will be so terrible it'll be Kemapecha Sodom Sodom just like we said uh, last week, Nimrod was held up as the archetype of a great hunter. Sodom is held up as the archetype of devastation, of destruction. Today we say it looks like Hiroshima, it looks like Dresden. Back then they would say it looks like, uh, it looks like uh, Sodom. Things look like Sodom. Sodom was a terrible, terrible place. Anshei Sodom, Ro'im v'chataim la'ashem the, the story in next week's parasha talks about how terrible it was. It says that, the, it, gives, it gives an example, the, the, the Malachim visit Lot, and immediately he's besieged by a mob that wants to take them out, and not to put too fine a point on it, to gang rape them. Sodom obviously was a horrific place. Yet surprisingly, there are psukim in Yecheskel, the Navi Yecheskel, when the, when the Navi talks about Sodom in passing, he's comparing the sinfulness to the Jewish people to Sodom. So Yechezkel describes the, the sin of Sodom, not perhaps using the language that we would have used. Sodom, your sister. This is the sin of Sodom. What did they do? What, what happened in Sodom? Sodom, the archetype of evil, destroyed by God personally. Gaon, Sivas, Lechem. It had pride or might. It had fullness of bread. It had, uh, it had, it was satiated with bread. Veshalvas hashke tayla. It had peace and abundance and calmness. Tayla oblivnoseha. Its satellite cities, its daughter cities. Viyad ani ve'evyon lo hechzika. Despite having all the material advantages in the world, it refused to. Uh, it refused to support ani ve'evyon, the needy, the the pauper. It refused to give tzedakah. Refused to do chesed. It, did, it was haughty, it did abominations. But the, the one concrete example of the, of the depravity of Sodom is that they had all, all the good, Gaon, Sivas, Lechem, Gaon, Sivas, Lechem, and yet, and yet it refused to support the poor. You'd think such a terrible place, Raim Vachatayim, they were. Uh, assaulting and doing unspeakable things to guests. You'd think we could have, we could have thought of some more uh, egregious examples of sinfulness, but that's what the Navi says. Ga'on sivas lechem, they had plenty of food and peace, and, 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 they, and they, couldn't, they, they, they couldn't bear to share any of that with the, with the Ani Ve'evya. 
This basic tension in, in Sodom, on the one hand, we find it was a terrible, terrible place worthy of, worthy of uh, a, biblical, uh, a biblical act of uh, memorable destruction, on the one hand, and yet we find that in a certain sense their, their sins were somehow, it was a civilized place, it was a place that had laws, it was a place that, it wasn't just a jungle where people, uh, people went around beating each other up and killing each other. This picture emerges from a, uh, a, a very striking, very colorful Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, actually the same daf we discussed last week about the Dar HaPlaga, that a little later, beside the Dar HaPlaga, Ein Lachelech Lom Haba, the men who built the tower, Anshe Sodom, the men of Sodom also have no chalik in Olam Haba. So the Gemara goes for a while detailing the, the terrible crimes and perversions of Sodom. And it's a very strange picture. On the one hand, they did terrible things. They, 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 had, uh, they had astonishingly cruel and ways of torturing people to death if they violated their laws. They murdered, they stole, they, they murdered in, this, in, in these diabolically clever ways. And yet, the, throughout the Gemara, the picture emerges of a society that at least pretended it was lawful, a society that was full of judges and laws. So, for example, uh, one example the Gemara gives is that when they wanted somebody's property, they would take him, they would put him near a, a wall, an inclined, flimsy wall, they would push it down and, uh, and kill him and take his property. So, obviously, they were murderers, but they, weren't, you know, they, they didn't just pull out a knife and stab him to death, uh, the, the, the strong prevail. They did it with plausible deniability, maybe. They say, oh, we're so sorry, you know, we, this is a terrible thing, we should have had more inspectors looking at this wall. They murdered, but they murdered somehow uh, under the color of law. The Gemara gives examples of the twisted perversions of, of what passed for law in Sodom. It says that, uh, it gives a number of famous examples. It says that the, the, there, were four, there were four judges in Sodom, four noted judges. Shakrai, the liar judge, Shakrurai, another type of liar, Zaifi, the forger, Masledina, the, the one who perverted justice. It gives an example. If someone would strike a, a married woman and cause her to miscarry, so what was the, how do you make restitution for that? What do you do? So they would tell the, they, they would tell the victim, the husband, they would say, give your wife to the person who assaulted her so he can get her with child again. Law, justice, it's fair, right? It's, uh, th- these were the laws of Sodom. It sounds, in, in some uh, very literal sense, it almost sounds plausible, but when you think about it, it's, uh, it's a nightmare, obviously. The, 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 the Gemara gives another example. It says that somebody, somebody cut off the air of someone's donkey. So they would say, okay, let's give the donkey to the person who cut off its air so he has time to, uh, to, to wait till the air grows back. He, in the meantime, he can use the donkey to do work. If somebody would strike somebody and wound him and draw blood, they would say, okay, he did bloodletting, which was believed to be medicinal, therapeutic. So you pay him. You pay him for, uh, for doing blood. Again, Sodom is not just a country with, where, where there's anarchy, where people do whatever they want, where, where the weak simply, where the strong simply take advantage of the weak. They do take advantage of the weak, but they do so through a perverted system of law, law gone awry, the law and civilization turned into something monstrous instead of instead of uh, what law should be. The Gemara has these, the, the, these hilarious accounts of Eliezer Everett Avram, who came to Stone about how he, he used a kind of uh, legal jujitsu to turn the tables upon Sodom itself. So it says that Eliezer came to, came to Sodom, someone wounded him, so he sued the fellow, he, he, he took him before the judge, the judge says, you pay him for bloodletting, that's the law in Sodom. 
Eliezer said, okay, so he picked up a stone and he wounded the judge. The judge says, what are you doing? Eliezer says, no problem. So you owe me for letting blood and I owe him, so you just pay him and I'm leaving. That, that's one story. The Gemara has another story. It says that in Sodom they had a bed. They, had, they actually liked guests in Sodom. They had a bed, a very special bed. It said when the guests would come, they would put him, they would, they, they would lay him down to sleep in the bed. If he was too tall, they would uh, cut him down to size. If he would be too short, they would stretch him out. They would basically, they would torture him to death. So Eliezer Ever Avram came to town. He realized what was going to happen. He told them, I took a vow that since the day my mother died, I, I don't lie on bed. So he somehow managed to escape their, uh, their hospitality, their, their civility. <clears throat> this story, of course, is reminiscent of the ancient Greek legend of the bandit Procrustes, who used to do this to his guests, used to put them on this bed and either cut them up or stretch them. The way the Greeks tell the story, the way, for example, Plutarch tells the story. So what happened was that, uh, that when Theseus met, uh, met Procrustes, so it says he overcame, he picked up Procrustes, he stuck him in his own bed, and that's how he killed him. The Plutarch goes on, this is a kind of midic negat mida, to, to visit the, the crimes of those who, who perpetrate them on others, on themselves. The Gemara story is strikingly similar, except, of course, with a different ending. The, uh, Eliezer did not uh, kill the people in stone. He simply had a, a clever way of, uh, of getting out of it. And so on and so forth, until we get to the climactic story in the Gemara, the terrible story, the, the most heartbreaking of them all. There was a girl, a girl who was apparently righteous, and she used to actually secretly smuggle out bread to bring to the, the poor people. She felt so bad for them. They caught her. They found her, so they decided that a simple punishment, jail or something, wouldn't be enough for her. They, they, they devised the most fiendishly uh, cruel thing they could think of. They took honey, they, they rubbed her with honey, they put her, they put her on top of a wall, and then, the, and then all the hornets came and ate her, stung her, consumed her, destroyed her. And that was the, that was the nail in the coffin, so to speak, of Sodom. Bayom Rashem, Zaka Sodom, Bamoriki Raba. Rubba literally means it has become too high, it has become too much. The Gemara Darshan's Rubba is like Riva. Riva is a word for a young girl. It was because of this monstra- this atrocity they, that they committed against this young girl, Hashem finally decided enough is enough, Sodom is going to be destroyed. So again, it, we have a kind of a, a strange, a, a mixed picture of Sodom. Sodom, they, they were monsters, they were monsters, they were perverters of justice, they were <clears throat> there were murderers, there were thieves, they certainly didn't do Achnasas Archem, and yet again, it was under some type of color of law, they pretended they, they were civilized, they pretended they had judges and laws, the laws were caricatures, were perversions, again, a very mixed picture of Sodom. In the Psukim, we have on the one hand, Ra'im v'chataim, on the other hand, the great crime, the root of the crime was Ga'on Sivas Lechem and Yadon Ivevion Lo Echzika, here also we find, we find echoes of this in the Gemara as well. The ultimate crime, you see what, what motivated them was a hatred of chesed. That this poor girl who simply tried to do a little chesed, a little tzedakah, was tortured to death. Another story the Gemara brings, it says that, it says that when, when an ani came, they would give him money. Everyone would give him money, but they would clearly mark the money in such a way that they, uh, that they knew whose money it was, that, that they, they knew this money was... Uh, special money that, that nobody should, uh, 
that, that that nobody should actually accept as payment for anything. So it says that they would uh, everyone would give them money, but nobody would accept the money. So the poor person had a had a whole wallet full of coins, but nobody would but but n- nobody would take the money. Finally, he would die of starvation, and they would uh, all take back their money. So again, they hated Chesed. They hated the idea of tzedakah, and yet. They pretended they gave tzedakah. They, they were a civilized place. They all gave him money. And unfortunately, the poor guy, he died. What happened? He had so much money. He must have been mentally ill or something. He died, and they took back their money. So, so Sodom, the, the, apparently, as, as Chazal indicated, as the Psukim indicate, the, the ultimate rat, the ultimate moral rat of Sodom was, a, was a, a, a hatred of chesed, a hatred of sharing anything with anybody else. It, this, this extended, this manifested itself in, in murder, in theft, in, in, uh, in ludicrous perversions of din. But, but there's a motif in Chazal in various places that, the, that, that, the, that, that ultimately this is all rooted in a profound hatred of chesed, in an almost uh, a caricature of an Ayn Randian view of the world that altruism is wrong and misguided. Shali, shali, v'shalach, shalach, that they, they hated, hated chesed to the extent they would, they, it was a capital crime to commit, to commit chesed. But ultimately, it was all rooted in what the Pasuken Yechezkel calls ga'on sivas lechem, v'yadani ve'evyon lo hechzika, that they simply could not abide, they could not tolerate chesed. This is the picture we get from the, from the Haggadah, from the Midrash of the Gemara. There's a famous story also about Lot, when, when the angels came to Lot, so his wife went, and she went looking, for, she went asking everyone for salt. She said, we have guests. Yelot was trying to hide the fact that he had guests. He told them, don't wash off your feet. People shouldn't know that you're guests, that you're here in my house. They should think you just got here. And uh, apparently, even those who did chesed, even Lot, who's very much uh, a, uh, an, an, an somewhat, somewhat ambiguous figure in, in the biblical narrative, even if he did chesed, he had to do it uh, secretly and uh, cloak and dagger kind of operation. So, so the, 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 according to Chazal, the picture of Sodom it ultimately manifested itself in mob violence, in calculated, uh, calculated abominations and, and diabolical uh, torture and so on, and perversions of justice. But the root, the root of Sodom, the, the ultimate ideology that motivated Sodom was this uh, preposterously Ayn Randian kind of notion that it is wrong, it is profoundly wrong to share what you have with somebody else, What's ours is ours. We will not share it with anybody else. This is, this is of course, the, the language I've been using is the language of the Mishnah, a famous Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. The Mishnah talks about different attitudes toward property held by, held by different people. The Mishnah says that if someone says, the first one, if someone says, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, I don't steal from you. I would never take anything away from you. But what's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. I'm not asking you for anything that belongs to you. Don't ask me for anything that belongs to me. Private property is the, the be-all and end-all of human relations, of economics. Private property is the alpha and omega. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. So the mission actually brings a, uh, a rather striking difference of opinion. The first opinion says, zumi that's a normal attitude. The second shita is, zumi stone. That is the Midah of Stone, which obviously is a terrible, terrible thing. The Mepharshim explained that it's adjacent to Midah Stone, that, uh, that a person might have a reason for keeping his own things. I need my own property. I need it for myself. I, I can't afford to give it up. That's not necessarily Midah Stone, but if you get carried away, if you keep, if you keep uh, fetishizing private property, 
you keep fetishizing your rights and, and, and forget about the fact that across the table from you is a human being who, uh, who, who breathes and, and, uh, and lives and, and has needs also, you're going to eventually end up with stone. You're going to end up like stone, that even in cases where you have what you need and, and, you, don't need, and, and you can afford it, you have gaon sivas lechem, you still won't give anything to somebody else as a shita, as a, as a dogma, as an ideology, and that is, that is midas dom. The midas dom, aside from these various midrashim, aside from these types of agada comments, midas dom is actually, is actually a halakha concept. Midas dom, as we've discussed uh, previous shiurim, midas dom is actually something, a, a, a halakha concept that has ramifications throughout Chosh uh, Mishpat, throughout the laws that regulate interpersonal conduct between Jews. I, I always like to quote, my father showed me a number of years ago an interview in Ami magazine with Professor Nachum Rakover. Nachum Rakover is one of my, one of my heroes. Nachum Rakover is a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He's, he's one, of, one of the leaders of Mishpat Ivri, those, uh, those who try to organize and interpret and uh, categorize Halacha, Chosh Mishpat, using modern legal terminology, modern legal categories. Rakover is a tremendous Talmachachim also. So the interviewer asked him, Rabbi Frankfurter of Ali Magazine, asked him, so tell me, you're an expert in comparative law, you're an expert in Chosh Mishpat and how it compares to other law, secular law, modern law. So tell me, he asked Rakover, what, what is the difference? What is the uniqueness of Torah law? How, does Torah law, how is Torah law different from, from secular law? So Rakover said that unlike, unlike I, I only have part of the quote preserved in my notes, I'm, I'm quoting the rest from memory, but he said, unlike in secular law, you have a legal obligation, you satisfy your obligation, you're done, that's it. If you obey the law, then the law has no further, no further demands on you. The, you, you, might have, you might have ethics, that, those are systems outside the law, professional ethics, personal ethics, the law is uh, something separate from ethics, the law simply makes its demands. Once you satisfy the law, you're done. That's all the law asks of you. The Torah, he says, is fundamentally different. He says the same Gemara, the same Shulchan Aruch that tells you the din, that tells you what you have to do, also incorporates Lefnimashur din, also incorporates Midas Hasidus and Yosher and other concepts like that. You can have, you can have the Halacha in one sif and the very next sif and the same code will tell you what you should be doing, Lefnimashur din, and so on. And that's a feature, Rockover said, which is something unique, which is something uh, peculiar to the law of the Torah. He gave an example about Midastom. Midastom is another example, he said. Midastom, classic law, deals with private property. My rights are my rights. And once I, as, long as, I, as long as I respect your rights and, resp- and honor all my duties, I'm done. Halacha says no. Halacha says there's such a thing as Midastom. There's such a thing as... This is my right, but Afel Bikain, if I insist on it, even though I have Gaon Sivas Lechem, I have enough of myself, I insist on my rights, I worship rights as, uh, as, as the be all and end all, he says, that's Midastom, you can't do that. He relates that there was one sage in Torah in Netanya in Israel. Somebody bought a very large refrigerator, didn't fit through the entrance and stairwell of the building. We've all had cases where delivery people, movers, have had trouble getting things in the door. So they realized that the only way to get it into his house would be to use his neighbor's porch. Apparently this man didn't have an appropriate porch. His neighbor had a porch, so the plan was, let's take it uh, up through the neighbor's porch, get it into the building, move it through the hallway, get it into his house. That was going to be the, the way to do this. The neighbor said, okay, you can do that, 
but I'm going to charge you. You're going to pay me for the convenience of using my property. They went to the Basin. They went to a Basin. The Basin says, you're not allowed to charge. You have to let them do it, and you're not allowed to charge. So Rockover says he told this to an American attorney. The attorney laughed. The attorney couldn't get his head around that. How can you do that, he says. It's private property. It's, uh, it belongs to me. You can't invade my privacy, my property. It's, it's mine. What, what kind of law is that, he said. That's the view, Rockover says, of the majority of legal systems. Not the view of the Torah. The Torah has a notion of kof and almidas dom. The Torah says you're not supposed to behave like a sodomite. And the, the halach is kof and almidas dom. We can even compel, Basin can even compel you in certain cases to refrain from behaving like an inhabitant of stone. And that's something unique, that that's something unusual, he says. That's something that is particular, peculiar to the Torah. So for the, for the duration of our class tonight, I want to discuss the, some of the details of Midas Dome. The truth is that the, the Talmudic law on Midas Dome and the development of the law in later poskim is actually not all that clear. The Talmud is full of contradictions or ambiguities, and even the later poskim, it is actually very difficult to nail down exactly what does and does not constitute Midas Dome. The Gemara does use the expression Kofen al Midas Dome, that we, com- that we compel people not to behave in the fashion of the inhabitants of stone. But the Gemara generally is not discussing actually requiring me to give up my own property. One example the Gemara has is the one striking example. The Gemara actually does not use the expression of Midas stone, but w- one example is the Gemara in Baba Basra has a very interesting dialogue that occurred between two neighbors. That one neighbor was building, and he wanted to build where his wall would be too close. The halacha requires that if your neighbor has a window, you, should, you cannot build a, a wall on your property that would block up and uh, obstruct his window. So this neighbor wanted to build a home in such a way that it would block his neighbor's window. So he told his neighbor, okay, I recognize that you have a right to have windows. I'll tell you what, at my own expense, I'll relocate the window to a different part of your house, to a different room, to a different part of the wall where my building will not block it. So the neighbor said, no, I don't want to do that because if you start doing construction of the walls and building up an old one, knocking out a new one, that's going to weaken the wall. All the, all the work on the wall is going to damage the structural integrity of the wall. So he said, okay, so I'll take down the whole wall and I'll rebuild it at my own expense with the walls, with the windows where, where, where it would be convenient for us. The neighbor said, no, but the rest of the house then, the rest of the house will have three old walls and one new wall and that's not going to work well. That doesn't work construction-wise. So the fellow said, okay, I'll take down your whole house. I'll rebuild the entire house from scratch. You'll have a brand new house at my expense with windows in the suitable places. How about that? What could possibly be your objection to that? So he said, no, because what am I going to do in the meantime? Where am I going to live? Even if he puts him up at his own expense, I don't want the Terechov having to move. Nobody wants to move. At the end of the day, the Gemara says that's a legitimate objection, that he has a legitimate reason to say, I don't find your plan convenient. But the, the subtext of the entire passage is, if there were no objection, if he had no valid objection, the fact that my house is mine, you can't touch it, is not an objection. If, if I want to relocate your windows at my expense, again, if, if the windows will be in the wrong room, obviously, uh, that's not going to work. But assuming that there's no coherent objection you can express, Kofen Almidas Dome in such a case would say that you have to allow me to make these adjustments to your house if you cannot articulate any reason why that would bother you. So that's the case, again, I'm not actually going to be trespassing on your house, I'm not going to be seizing any part of your property from my own, 
I just want to ask you to relocate, to, to redesign your house. Some, some people might find that itself a tra terrible trespass, dictating how my house should look. That's an example where the Gemara says, we say, Kofen Elmidah stone. But in, in many other cases, if not for the fact that there were valid reasons to object. But in many other cases, the, the Gemara is somewhat ambiguous, whether we say Kofen Elmidah stone or not. The Marasham, a century, a century and a half ago, the Marasham discusses a, a classic, you know, timeless application of, of this question. He says somebody needed to do some work on his, own, on his own building, his own house. In order to do that, he had to put up a ladder. And the way the ladder had to be set up, the ladder would have had to rest on his neighbor's property. He want, his, his neighbor says no. I'm not sure if, like in Rockover's case, the neighbor wanted to charge him or the neighbor just said no, period. His neighbor refused to allow the placement of a ladder on his property. So this halacha, the Marsham points out, is a surprisingly unclear question in halacha. The, the, the basic parallels to this and precedents for this go back to the Talmud, but it is, it is surprisingly uh, difficult to reach a clear conclusion on this. The Marsham goes back and forth and back and forth, and uh, at the end of the day, he says that the, the Baal HaChatzer, the, uh, the owner of the property, could say Kimli. There's a standard rule, a meta rule in Chosh and Mishpat, that if there is an unresolved dispute about property rights, the person who is in possession, who is the muksa, can say, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you want to compel me to give up some right that I have and your grounds for doing so are dubious, are a matter of dispute, you can't win. The burden of proof, both as a matter of fact and as a matter of law, is on the plaintiff. And therefore, in this case, the Marsham said, the Baal HaChatzer, the owner of the, the property, can say whether you have the right to, to compel me to put a ladder on my property is a matter of dispute, even though I have no objection, even though I cannot articulate any objection to it. I'm not claiming that the ladder is going to tear up my flower beds. I'm not claiming that the ladder is going to cut furrows in my lawn that will be unsightly. I'm not claiming that I'm afraid the ladder is going to fall and crash through my window and fall into my bedroom. I'm not claiming any of these things. I'm simply claiming my property, like the lawyer in Rockover's case, my property, don't tell me what to do with my property. That, the Marsham concludes, is a machlokas. And therefore, as a matter of halacha he says the Baal HaChatzer would win. He doesn't say this is a nice thing to do. He doesn't say this is uh, appropriate necessarily. But he does say that as a matter of halacha, whether Bastin will compel somebody, as per that Bastin and Tanya, to allow somebody even, even temporarily to trespass on his property or not is a machlokas. So I'm not sure, again, I don't have the, the, case, I don't have the, the, the case file for this based in Netanya. I don't know what they ruled, what it was based on. But the Marsham, in a classic tshuva, brings a number of earlier poskim on this basic question and comes out that, it, that the halacha is full of uh, contradictions or disputes on this point. And at the end of the day, we cannot actually force somebody to allow you to use his property without permission, even if he can't articulate a real objection. I saw a, uh, there, are, there are various modern, modern cases where, where, where similar issues have come up. Again, this is basically a, t a timeless question. Rabbi Mayor Orlean, writing, for the, writing in the popular Business Weekly, he talks about a case where somebody wanted to extend an air conditioner, extend a wall unit or some kind of, uh, some kind of unit that would extend out of his, out of his, out of his wall. And, the, and the, the air conditioner would extend out of, his, out of his window, but it would be over some type of property that belonged to the neighbor. 
I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what the case is, but, uh, but, but the, the air conditioner would be in the airspace of the neighbor's property. It would be high up, so it wouldn't interfere with any actual use they had, they conceivably could have for their property. Whatever they used it for, storage, or just sitting down there, whatever it was, it would not in any way bother the neighbors. But the neighbor nevertheless objected. It's his space, so it's his airspace, and therefore, the, technically, it was the neighbor's property, it seems. Does the neighbor have the right to object to you sticking something out over his property, high up, in such a way that it does not interfere with his property in any way? So Rabbi Orlean's uh, avatar, Rabbi Dayan, discusses the question of whether the, you're allowed to do this or not. He goes back and forth. So he says, the bottom line is, after quoting some of the classic literature, some of the contemporary literature, he says, if the neighbor has any, any, any reasonable objection then he can, he can certainly object. So if he can figure out any reason why it's a problem, privacy or other concerns, then it would be an issue. Even if, even if it's a question of noise, even if the problem is the air conditioner makes noise, even though I can't necessarily stop you from installing an air conditioner on your own property if it makes noise, because that noise is reasonable noise. However, if I want to use your property, my only right to do that is because there's no possible reason you could object because of me just dome. Noise is a valid reason. So if your objection is because of noise, that's also valid. However, if there is no basis for the objection, if there is no basis for the objection whatsoever, if there is no conceivable reason why the neighbor cares, then Rabbi Orlean says the halacha would be the neighbor cannot object. If he has reason to object, even if the reason is simply noise, he has the right to object to the intrusion, the protrusion over his property. Again, that's like the based in, in Netanya, that uh, you cannot object to here it's even a permanent trespass, not just movers coming in for a half hour. Here we're talking about the air conditioner will be there for 30 years, maybe. But nevertheless, Rabbi Orlean believes that the halacha is you cannot object if you have no conceivable reason to object. But if you, but if you do, when it's easy enough to imagine that there would be such as noise, then you can object. As we've seen in the Marsham, this halacha is not at all clear. There are numerous sources in the postkim that do indicate that a person has the right to object, even to a ladder, even to a temporary ladder, so it's not at all clear that you, would have, uh, that you would have no right to object. Also, practically speaking, in most real-world cases, it is not at all difficult to articulate a real reason to object. You want to have, in the case of Netanya, the case of the air conditioner, the case of the refrigerator, delivery, you want to have movers, the guy wants to have movers tramp through your house. It's, you can think of a million reasons why people don't want movers carrying heavy furniture trampling through their house. They can scratch the walls. They can knock stuff off the, off the, off the wall. They can, uh, they, they, they can trip and uh, drop the air conditioner down the stairs. You, they, they, they can see that my kitchen is not neat, or they, they might go through my bedroom and see my bedroom is not neat. I can think of all kinds of reasons. Privacy, damage, and so on, even if they're bonded and insured. Who wants this? Now, there, are, there are a lot of reasons why you don't want movers going through your house. So in a modern world, certainly, in almost any real-world case one could think of, it's not all that difficult to, to conceive of reasons why somebody might not be happy. And in, in which case, as long as, as long as halacha would accept that a reasonable person might object, it would not be midastam. However, in principle, if there is no genuine reason, or maybe even if you could claim a reason, but it's not honest, you, you honestly don't care, you, you don't mind if someone sees your messy kitchen, you have friends and neighbors all the time, and it doesn't bother you, then, then to just say, well, it's my property, so you can't come in, even if you want to charge him, even if you're not out to uh, be malicious, you just want to take advantage and charge, even that is not a justification. Post can make this point. In general, if, if a certain attitude constitutes midas dome, the fact that you want to charge for it and that's your reason for objecting, that doesn't count. The fact that you... The, it, 
if, uh, if, if a certain type of behavior in principle constitutes midas dom, then the fact that you want to charge for it, that does not in and of itself, that does not in and of itself legitimize the, the behavior. Now, the problem, of course, is that if you have a spare house or a spare car and you rent it out, that, of course, is normal. Someone can't tell you, look, you're not, you can't live in two houses anyway, so why can I live there? You're not driving both your cars, so why can I drive your second car when you're not using it? Obviously, items that are typically rented and it's normal to rent, even if you are not a professional car rental agency, even if you're just a private citizen who happens to inherit a spare house, no one can tell you, well, you can't really live there anyway, so you might as well let me live there rent-free. Of course not. You, you have the right to rent out your property. So it, it, it's a fairly difficult question. It's, I've been struggling with this you know, literally for decades. It's, it's a fairly difficult question to articulate when something is called midas dom and it's not normal to charge for it and I have no right to charge for it, and when we say doing business and charging rent is normal, that, that's normal business, even if I don't need it personally, that's not midas dom. Maybe the difference is you can sell it and other people would, would rent it out. Years ago, I remember seeing Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine in one of his books on Chosh Mishpat. He talks about the idea, very common question, you're driving somewhere and someone asks you for a ride. You're going anyway to a wedding, let's say, going to New Jersey for a wedding. So, so, someone asks you for a ride. Should he pay you? Should you charge him? Rabbi Levine argues strongly, if I recall correctly, that it's wrong to charge. It's midas dom. You're going anyway. Why does it bother you to take somebody else? Again, just like in the case of the refrigerator, wanting to charge does not justify acting in a way that's midas dom. This is not a commercial service, he feels, apparently, and therefore charging is wrong. He goes so far as to say that the passenger shouldn't even volunteer to pay, because by doing, even though you think that's just good midas and decency, he feels that that's, uh, you're, you're, you are legitimizing Midas Dome, you're, you're, you're strengthening a mentality of Midas Dome, you shouldn't do that. But again, the, that case is complicated. People often want to pay because gas costs money, tolls cost money. The counter-argument is that those are sunk costs. The, purchasing the car also costs money, but that's a sunk cost. You're, you purchased the car five years ago, you're paying that money whether you have a passenger or not. Arguably, tolls and gas is the same thing. Tolls is certainly the same thing. That The tolls are a sunk cost. If you're driving there anyway, you're paying the same tolls. Even the gas is largely a sunk cost. You might have a relatively small marginal increase in gas by the additional weight of a passenger, but that's negligible, I assume. So, so that there are those who argue that charging for a ride is midas dom. On the other hand, the... It's not so easy to articulate why that's different from charging for a, uh, for a spare house that you have. So it's not always easy to define when something is called doing normal business and when something is called midas dom. Additionally, in the case of the ride, as I mentioned earlier, in, the modern, in, the, in, the, in, the, in our modern society, almost anything, had, there are reasonable objections. Having a passenger in your car, we can think of several reasons why that's not the most comfortable thing. You lose privacy. You might want to make private phone calls. You can't do that. You, it's more crowded. If, if he wants you to pick him up from somewhere else other than where you're going or drop him off somewhere else, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's an additional tercha. It takes additional time. Even if he doesn't, the mere fact you have to commit yourself, you, if, if, you have to commit to leave at exactly a certain time, you lose the flexibility. You can't decide to leave a half hour later or a half hour earlier without inconveniencing him. We can think of all kinds of reasons why a reasonable person might not want uh, a passenger. Of course, there are reasons why you might want a passenger as well. He can talk to you, he can, he can, he can be friendly, he can keep you awake, he can, uh, and so on. So you can argue it both ways, but again, certainly if a person objects and says, I don't want to take you because 
I like my privacy, I like my quiet, and I just want to be able to make phone calls, or, or you can't sleep when you drive, obviously, but, but I, just want my, uh, I just want my space and my privacy, arguably that would be a legitimate reason. But Rabbi Levine fails, if none of those apply, if there's no legitimate objection to Midas Stone that you have, then the, you have no right to charge, and you shouldn't even charge. On the other hand, there's a tshuva in the Marshag, the Marshag was talking about a case of giving a ride, not, not in a personal way. He was talking about giving a ride for commercial merchandise. He was talking about a fellow, two, two, two businessmen. One of them had merchandise to transport. And the, so the way they did it, apparently, at least in this case, was instead of paying by the individual pound for his merchandise, he simply rented out an entire train car. That was apparently the cost-effective way to do it. He simply rented a train car. This car is mine for this uh, run of this train. But he only had merchandise to fill up half the train, half the car. So he met another merchant, a friend of his, someone else, and he said, okay, I'll take yours, and you'll pay me for half the car. The other merchant said, why should I pay you? Me dust down. Yes, you paid money to rent the car, but that's a sunk cost. That, that you paid that regardless. You would have paid it regardless of whether you, ever, you paid for it before you ever met me. So that cost is a sunk cost. I'm not costing you anything additional. Go and see us lechem. You have the train car anyway. You're not using it. Why does it bother you if, if, I, if I freeload off you? Marshag says, no. The Marshag says, since train cars are commercial things, people who rent cars and only need half typically look for, he said they typically look for people to, to buy in, to buy the other half. That's a commercial service, he says, and therefore, even though it's true, you would have done it anyway. When you, when you rented it, you didn't know you had another customer for it, but you hoped you would, and it was normal to find another one. Not a direct contradiction to Rabbi Levine, because Rabbi Levine is discussing private people, private, uh, non-commercial. Today, everyone's commercial with Uber and so on, but there used to be a difference between uh, professional and personal. Rabbi Levine was saying, at least with, with, personal, uh, with personal cars, if a person has no intention of renting it out, it's not realistic, there's no market for it. At least in that case, Rabbi Levine felt that would, be a, uh, that would be an issue of Kofen Almidas Dome. It's wrong to charge for such a thing. That's what Stone was guilty of. Going back again to the case of the air conditioner, or the case of extending something, the ladder or the air conditioner, extending something onto someone else's property, we find again, we find uh, another conflicting tshuva. We find in the Sefer, Lahoros Nassan, Tshuvas Lahoros Nassan, or Nassan Gestetner, he talks about a case very similar to Rabbi Orlean's case of the air conditioner, he talks about a case a little more substantial. The fellow wanted to build not an air conditioning unit, he wanted to extend some kind of balcony, some kind of extension to his house, a second floor extension that would pass over the airspace of somebody on, of somebody on the bottom. Again, there would be no obvious harm necessarily. It wasn't clear that there would be any, any straightforward way that this would in any way bother or interfere with the lower person's use of his property. Nevertheless, Rabbi Gestetner says there are some ways that it might interfere, and beyond that, he says, as we've seen, the Marsham and others, it's a big machlokas whether you have the right to use somebody else's airspace or use somebody's property without permission. At the end of the day, he says, it's, 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 it's insufficiently clear in halacha that you have the right to use someone else's property, even airspace without permission. And the halacha, he says, you cannot force him to let you put out the balcony unless he agrees. However, he adds, as we mentioned earlier, there is such a thing as the Mishur Sadim. Even if the halacha is not kofen al midastom, even if Faisen cannot compel somebody in this case to behave in a manner of the Mishur Sadim, it might be the right thing to do, he says. If you really have no or minimal harm, he says, and the neighbor will benefit tremendously by being able to expand his house, 
Why are you giving him such a hard time? He says, it means a great deal to him, and it's not really important to you. Is, is, the, is the abstract value of private property so important that it's worth, uh, it's worth depriving your neighbor of so much benefit? He says, la halacha, that's true. La halacha, even as Rockover says, even in Jewish law, there are still limits. Basin can't always force you to act. The Basin of Netanyahu aside, Basin cannot always force you to act in a way that's menschlich, in a way that's consistent with the values of the Torah. Nevertheless, he says, Basin should tell the guy, look, we can't force you to, it, to do it, however. He says, however, we sh- you should know it's a mitzvah, it's Kamilas Chesed, it's Lashem Mishur Sadin, it's Vashisa Yashur Vatov. So, for all these reasons, we tell him that, that, that if it really doesn't bother you and it's really a tremendous benefit to him, the right thing to do, even if Basin cannot compel this in this particular case, the right thing to do is to. Uh, the right thing to do is to, is, to, uh, is to cooperate with him, although he does add, he does add that the, the person should pay him something for that. For that. If, if the person is getting such tremendous benefit and he's asking for the he's asking for the he's asking for the he's asking for the for the person's cooperation, he should pay him something for the for his acquiescence. I see a couple of people have noted that if the that if nobody is gonna, if nobody's going to be charging for rides, then nobody's going to drive. Nobody's going to buy a car. Everyone's just going to freeload and rely on somebody else, and 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 then society won't function well like that. So that that, that that's certainly an important point. That certainly is true. That, that that to the extent that things would break down and nobody would do it, that's true. Although again, but in the case you're talking about giving somebody a ride to a chasana, whether somebody occasionally gets a ride to a chasana, two people are going, it's not really going to it's not really going to affect. It's not really going to affect whether people buy cars. If you take it too far, I guess, eventually, yes, eventually. If everybody has a car, then you assume that nobody is going to want to be the person to initially drive because everybody else can just freeload off of them. Nobody has a car. If somebody doesn't have a car, then yes, it works. But if you're in a society where virtually everybody has a car, then everybody is disincentivized to be the original driver. Right, so this is kind of a uh, a game theoretical question. You play chicken, you you wait to see which person is going to give in first and decide to drive, and the other one takes advantage of him. So yeah, so so, so at some point, I guess, right, you you might end up with perverse incentives, you might end up with cases where nobody's going to drive, because I I guess eventually somebody will will choose to drive, or they're going to miss the wedding. They they don't want to miss the wedding, necessarily. So yeah, you have to work it out, I guess, and and try to figure out. That's, That's, I guess, what game theoreticians do. You have to figure out what society would look like if we gave people the right to try to, uh, try to play chicken and wait till the other guy did it. Yeah, so uh, it's a good point. I, I'm not sure exactly how this would work in practice, but uh, yeah. So I just want to close with, discuss briefly one last case which has gotten a lot of attention both in, both in Jewish circles as well as in more general circles over the last 10, 15 years or so. Less common today, but that is the question of using someone else's internet connection without asking him for it. Used, used to be. Many people didn't, didn't uh, implement any sort of encryption on their residential connections. You can just uh, be next to somebody's house and pick up a signal and use it. Today, it's becoming more and more common that most, uh, many, many units, most units ship with, by default, at least some type of, uh, some type of protection for the owner. But for, 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 for 20 years or so, people have been discussing whether there is anything wrong with using somebody else's internet connection. So, the law apparently is surprisingly unclear. There's an entire Wikipedia page on the legality of piggybacking on a, on an, on a wireless internet connection uh, off somebody's Wi-Fi. 
It's, uh, m many jurisdictions have rules about, uh, rules about unauthorized access to a protected system, but the, the language is very unclear, what's called a protected system, what's called unauthorized. The, the law is surprisingly ambiguous about this. Ethicists have argued about it. Postkin have argued about it as well. The rabbinic authors have been arguing. I haven't seen any major discussion by a uh, top-tier postsake of this question, but you know, various distinguished rabbinim and other writers have been grappling with this question for years. Is there anything wrong with using somebody's internet without his permission? So again, if, if we're approaching it from a perspective of Midas Dome, obviously if you cause him any harm or inconvenience, then there is, uh, there's a problem. So, so then on, 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 uh, we, have, we have Isaac Moses here on, on Miodea. People have been discussing this for a decade or two. So obviously, if a person is bandwidth-capped, or, or if your use is going to interfere with his latency, even if, if you are going to interfere, if you're either going to drive up his costs, or if you're going to slow down and, and, and hamper his ability to have, uh, to have uh, excellent service, and obviously that's a problem. Obviously, you can't, you can't be, you, 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 he, obviously it's not me to stone for him to object if you're, going to, if, if you're going to be interfering with the quality of his service. Moreover, if the... If you're going to be doing something illegal and you're going to bring the, the authorities to the door, if you're selling drugs over, over your internet connection, if you're doing, you shouldn't be doing that anyway, but if you are and you do it on his connection, certainly he has the right to object. If you're doing things that, that, can, cause, uh, that, that can cause malware infections or so on, if that's, if that's a possibility, not likely if you're just borrowing his connection. But the, obviously if there's any actual inconvenience to him, certainly he has the right to object and certainly you shouldn't do it without his permission. But in theory, in many cases, you aren't going to. In, uh, in, 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 in first world countries, in, in certainly in urban areas, connections are generally pretty solid. And if you are, everyone's going to have a story about how his connection is terrible and the slightest uh, thing will destabilize it. But in general, in, in many cases, internet connections are fairly stable. If you're, you're watching, a, watching a movie in high resolution, that's more likely to use a bandwidth. If you're simply checking your email, much less likely. So assuming you're doing you know, light, uh, non-intrusive use, you want to just check your email over someone else's connection. So Postkim, as well as uh, the ethicists and lawyers, have been arguing about this for a couple of decades. And one of the key issues, again, is Midas Dome. Is it reasonable for the, for the person to object? I just don't want you using my connection. Go buy your own. Postkim have actually been grappling with this for, uh, as I said, for a couple of decades now, a uh, decade and a half or so. Some posts can actually uh, take for granted that it's usher. They say, it's not yours, it's not yours, and you have, uh, you have no right to use it. Rabbi Daniel Neustadt, for example, he says, he assumes that you're using up even at least a small amount of bandwidth, even email, and your uh, speed, speed depends on bandwidth, he says. Again, speed depends on bandwidth if you max the bandwidth. It doesn't really if you aren't, but... Uh, so he assumes that, that you are using something, you're, you're denying him total and full access to the bandwidth he's paying for, and you're causing him a hezek and stealing, he says. It might be against the law as well. Other posts can say, no, if there's really no hefzid, if there's really, if there's really, no, if there's really no, uh, no damage, no loss, no harm, no foul, so to speak. So postkim, the, the, the discussion in postkim has actually uh, echoed to a, to a large extent the, the general discussion of people in the world at large. Also, some people, there's an ethos of sharing, of doesn't bother you, why should anybody mind? Furthermore, some have tried to argue that if somebody doesn't bother to secure his, his network, that must mean he doesn't care. Personally, I think that is a very weak argument. The, most people who don't secure their network is more likely due to obliviousness or technical, uh, a lack of technical savvy rather than a conscious decision to make their connection available to the public. Even if, I'm sure there are, there are certainly some people who really have a... Uh, 
a sharing ethos, but I would suspect that if you did a survey of unsecured access points, the, I would suspect that the majority, probably the vast majority, have more to do with uh, technical error or lack of technical skill rather than uh, a uh, concrete notion of sharing. I'll call upon him, the, if, if, putting that question aside, he might not mind, just analyzing it from the perspective of Midas Tom, as we've seen, it's, it's something of a, of, of, a, of a complex area in Halakha. On the one hand, insisting that what's mine is mine, even though you have no reason to object, is wrong. And it may even be Kofinom Midas Tom, a Gaon Sivas Lechem. On the other hand, the, very often there are real reasons, even if right now the email is not interfering with you, but if, if one thing leads to another, if it, who knows how many things are running on his computer, services in the background that are going to start interfering with your connection, leeching off it, you know, once you open that door, you know, who knows where it will end up? People might have real reasons, and even if they don't, uh, again, it's far from clear that we say, that we actually can force people to, to, to allow trespass on their property, whether using a computer network is actually called trespass, you aren't physically, uh, you aren't physically trespassing, that's also a question, how to define use of a network in halakhic terms. So we have all kinds of interesting questions, but at the end of the day, the kind of the classic question is, is this midastom or not? Is it one classic question is, is this midastom? Is there any real reason to object if someone uses your connection? If there isn't, is it wrong? Is it wrong for you to care? So, so that, that depends on the issues we discussed. Had the, someone mentions, what about cheating the provider? So you'd have to read the terms of service. In the, in, in the early days, they used to be much stricter about this. Providers used to say, they even used to try to limit you to one computer in your house. Even installing a home router used to be against the terms of service sometimes in the really early days. Obviously, today, uh, today that's not the case. Today, they'll typically let you have as many devices as you want. As you want with, uh, so you'd have to read, I guess, your internet uh, provider's terms of service about whether they actually object to the sharing the connection with anybody outside your house. If they do, if the, if, if the, if the provider, if so, so also those terms of service are really a contract between the subscriber and the provider. The outsider is not bound by the terms of service. If, however, they say that our policy is you have no right to use our network, even if you're piggybacking someone else's account, there is a rule called Tanaishim Amon Kayim. So if the, if the provider says that we have an objection to anybody using our, using our service through another account, if they would explicitly state such a policy, then we could also argue that, yes, it might be, a, that it might be theft and, 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 and imp- illegal use of their services. For that, we'd have, we'd have to see whether they articulate such a policy. In the meantime, you could argue that, that, that just, like if, just like if I rent a house from somebody and I sublet it, so the, the person I sublet it to is not, is, not, is not depriving the owner of the house of his rights. So one could easily argue, if I pay for uh, this much bandwidth for the month, I can use it however I want. Let's say I choose to share it with my friend. Let's say I have a guest in my house. There's no objection to that. So if the, if the companies don't institute rules that prevent me from sharing it, it's, it's not clear necessarily that the, that the outsider who shares it without my permission would be in any way infringing on the rights of the provider itself. Okay, thank you all so much. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a good night. And wow. take questions if people have them, but uh, thank you all for listening. So, if you have a guest in your house, that's sort of understood. But this isn't sort of, whether it's literally in the contract or not, people who come in and visit you are allowed to use your internet. But having your neighbor do it means that your neighbor is not buying his own internet service. So, I, I, I agree with you that, that if the company would choose to institute such a policy, I agree with you, it would certainly not be Mida Stone on their part. 
I just don't know if they're doing that. Let's say, for example, telephone service. So let's say I have a neighbor. My neighbor decides he's not going to buy telephone service. Whenever he wants to make a phone call, he'll come into my house and, uh, and I'll let him use my phone. I mean, would the telephone company have the right to, 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 to bar that? They probably would if they chose to, but I don't know if they do. If an internet company would... I think there's a difference between them coming into your house and using your service and him tapping your line. I, mean, I think that's where the analogy is. That the telephone service goes into your house, I mean, it's old way, when they did it by landlines, and somebody else would sort of tap in and take the, um, you know, use it. Yeah, so I, I, again, I agree that it would be the company's right to, to bar that if they chose to do so. I agree if the, if the company articulated an explicit policy that even though we are allowing you and your guests to use this connection, we are not allowing you to share it with, uh, to, to let somebody tap into the line. I agree they could institute such a policy. Halakha generally gives, uh, gives, those, gives those who have, who have property a, a pretty wide latitude to restrict how it can be used by a renter. So I do agree that if the company explicitly made such a policy and said, you may not share this connection with neighbors, guests, even guests. I, they have the right to block you from guests as well if they chose. So I, I, I agree that they could. My question, is, my question is more really a technical one if indeed they explicitly articulate such a policy. If they say you may not share, they, they often have rules, for example, you can't use it for commercial services, you can't do this with it, you can't do that with it. So I, I agree that there's, all, there's paragraphs and paragraphs of terms of service that they articulate. I, it's really just a factual question. Do they articulate clearly anywhere in the terms of service that you may not allow someone else to share the connection on a regular or ongoing basis? I, haven't, yeah, I agree that if they do, that, that, then... They, you know, they, they, I, I totally agree that this is part of the contract and it's not a problem. But if they are giving you phone service or giving you internet service, they are presumably having a certain number of users use it. I mean, there's this understanding that you and your household will use it, but that no other parties who could buy it for themselves will just tap in and steal it. Because from their perspective, they want each individual household to purchase its own. Yeah, I, I know they want that. The question is, just because the company wants something doesn't mean that that becomes a... doesn't mean that that becomes... Wait, no, what I'm saying is that there's sort of... there's a taking from the company that is that isn't um, neutral. Yeah, but, but, but the, 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 what I'm trying to argue is that once the company rented that service to the, to the consumer, so it's the, con the consumer is now, now, now has the right to use it in any way that isn't, uh, that, that isn't explicitly restricted by the company. Unless you're, if you're arguing that it's, it's obvious that the company means to, means to impose such a restriction, maybe, I guess you'd have to ask reasonable people because what... You'd have one person rent, uh, like if you have an apartment building, one person gets internet service and everybody else taps into it, or one person gets phone service and everybody else taps into it into their, it, it feels like it's... Yeah, so what, what this reminds me of a little bit is when the book companies try to restrict things like giving books, to, selling books to libraries or trading books, the, the book companies felt this is terrible for our revenue because otherwise 10 people will buy the book. If you give it to the library, I'm only going to sell one copy and then nobody's going to buy it. And then they, they did try to block that. Uh, the case eventually went to the court. You know, there, was, there was the first sale doctrine, which doesn't apply to internet service, obviously, because there's no sale. So yeah, so, so companies do occasionally object. Uh, they, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes the business model is, we'll sell it, and if you find clever ways to take advantage, you know, good for you, but we're not going to stop you. So, so, so again, I just don't know. I, I hear your point. It's possible that the companies care enough for that to become a... Uh, a legally expressed objection, or it's possible they don't. I just don't know. I, I, the, the, if my, my point is, 
if, if, they, if they rent something, if they rent or you know, provide a service to the consumer, I don't know if they have the right to demand without explicitly stating so that the consumer not share it. You're, you're arguing that it's implicit, it should be self-understood, that they don't want the consumer sharing it in ways that might interfere with their ability to get more subscribers. It's possible, I, I just don't know without an explicit statement to that effect. I just don't know. If, I, don't, I don't know the law, certainly, and I'm, I'm not sure in halacha whether, whether we would automatically assume such an implicit condition if they don't actually e e express it explicitly. I have a question, a different question, about poor people coming from other countries and want, and want help. And then the country says, we have our own poor people, why should we, and, and your coming to our country prevents us from providing for our own poor people. So is this, is this a, I mean, is this a question of Midas Stone? And I'm asking that also because apparently that question came up during the time of the Gaumi Vilna, and the Gaumi Vilna ruled that it's Midas Stone. So, I mean, I, and since this is such a relevant question now uh, with, the, with, with the migrants, what, what, what do you think, I mean, what do you think it is? Is it Midas Stone? So there's a lot to unpack there. There, there. there are a lot of questions you have to deal with. So the, the first question is, if, if resources are genuinely constrained, if there genuinely are not enough resources, and it's a question of who to give them to, so, so prioritization is its own topic, but how do you prioritize scarce resources? In, in, in the halakhas of Tadaka, on the one hand, there are rules, for example, just to give an example, on the one hand, there are rules that local indigents take precedence over non-local. On the other hand, posts can say, many posts can say that, the, that those rules are not absolute. That means they have priority, but that doesn't mean that you're completely exempt from helping out someone who's, who, who's not local. So... But that's not so much a Midas Stone question, that that's more, at least not in the narrow sense we're considering it tonight, that's more a question of how to prioritize, how to get precedence. The story you mentioned about the Vilna Gone, I've heard a similar story, the, the, I, I don't have a source for it, but the, the version I heard goes that the, the Vilna Gone was not typically that involved in communal affairs, he wanted to sit and learn Torah, but at one point he made a deal with the community, he said if, if, you're, if you're doing anything new, if you're passing anything, uh, anything substantially uh, innovative, so call me for my, my opinion. So at one point, the community said, we, we, you know, we, we, we don't want people coming and bothering us for tzedakah, so we're going to bar, uh, bar tzedakah collectors from coming to ask for tzedakah. So the gun walked out of the meeting, and he said, why are you wasting my time? So they asked him, why? You told us if we pass new rules, you should call me. So we should call you. So the gun said, that's not a new rule. That rule goes back to stone. That, that rule goes back thousands of years. You know, that, that's, this is not new. So yeah, so, the, so even, though, even though obviously by definition, if, if, they, if the goal was to save money for themselves and, and, and keep it, if they needed it, it wouldn't be me just home. The, the Gon, I guess, felt that they didn't need it. The, the Gon savas lechem. The Gon felt that the, they were restricting tzedakah in such a way that they... That really goes back to your question about the migrants as well. If it's just a question of my honey or your honey, that's not me just home. If it's a question of maybe we should have higher taxes and we should take away money that the citizens want to use for their luxuries or for, or for just saving. Uh, that might be a question of going sabas lechem. How to actually deal with national policy is a, is a huge, complicated question. It's, it's difficult to answer in the course of a more uh, narrower, more technical halakhic share. 
But yes, potentially a, a, a country that was rich and refused to help the poor, even though they could well afford it, could very well run afoul of the, of the concerns. That's exactly what Stone did. Go and sell us Lechem. They had plenty of money, and they still refused to help the poor. So yes, a potentially a rich country that simply refused to share even a reasonable amount with the poor would be, uh, would be guilty of Midas Stone. How much is that? And, uh, how, how much did you give away? How much is reasonable to keep for yourself? obviously is, uh, is, is a complicated question. Okay, Rabbi, so I know that this isn't the main point of what your talk is, but I, when the rabbis start to get involved with whether or not we're allowed to charge if we're driving to a chasana, I get it in principle, so is what you're saying that if those half of those things posted on the listserv where, oh, I'm driving up to New York or I'm looking for a ride, I'm willing to pay for expenses, is that halakhically incorrect? Like, so shouldn't it be posted? So I would tell you that the, 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 as, I, as I kind of indicated during the share, Rabbi Levine's position, I think, is an outlier. I, when, I, when I learned in Lakewood, a city of many Talmudah Chachamim, it was, as you said, it was even more regular and more, more standard than here. There was a bulletin board. There were expected uh, amounts of how much you were supposed to offer. Many people declined it. Many people would say, no problem, I'm going anyway. I just want to do a chesed. Not everyone did charge, but, but, but it, 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 many, many people did accept money. Many people offered money. My sense is that the Rabbi Levine's position is not the standard position here. And again, for, for, for one of several reasons, either because there is a certain amount of inconvenience taking passengers, or because certainly in a place like Lakewood, where, where the system, or like even here, where the system is so common that people routinely offer and advertise, when someone makes a long trip, he's hoping, like the Chuba the Marshaga mentioned, he's hoping that on some level maybe you'll find someone to help share expenses. He knows he can't count on it, and he's not uh, not going to make it or break it. But but he knows originally that that, that it's a, that there are going to be joint costs, and it's, it's it's reasonable to share them. So I don't think in most cases in most cases I, I don't think it's. Uh, it's really me to stone. Certainly to offer, I think Rabbi Levine is definitely going too far there, where he says even to offer, to offer is wrong. I mean, offering is just menschlichkeit. If someone does you a favor to show a car as a tov, that I think is really going too far. But, but, but even the idea of charging, I, I think the more common minhag is that that is considered legitimate. We can discuss the reasons why, but I, 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 would, not, I, I would not be critical at all of the, of, of the common practice that we see of people offering and people accepting and people even asking for money for, uh, for, for taking somebody on a reasonable trip.